Okay. Like uh, to thank everybody for coming along today. This is the first seminar and, and hopefully what will be a series that we're going to share with uh, Matt's Physics every now and then. It's great to see all you guys here. Um, our speaker today is uh, Hugo Touchette from uh, Queen Mary in London. Uh, he's kindly agreed uh, to give a semi-tutorial style talk because the audience is so mixed. So if there's nothing, if, if some of you are familiar with this material, you can blame me rather than Hugo about the nature of its content, okay? Uh, and he's going to tell us today about uh, large deviation theory and its applications in statistical physics. So thank you very much for coming, Hugo. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you for an invitation first. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll talk about large deviations and I'll come to its applications in physics, but I'll, I'll start very slowly by explaining what I mean by large deviations, um, uh, the basic of the theory of large deviations, and then I'll come to the applications. And I won't go very deep into the physics nor the mathematics. If you want all the details, uh, you, can, you can see that in, in a recent review paper that I've written on large deviations and statistical mechanics. Um, I'm quite pleased to be in Ireland because Ireland has been very productive in terms of large deviations, still is actually. Um, and uh, if you know anything about the history of large deviations in Ireland, or if you have any interesting pictures or anecdotes, I'd like to hear uh, any of these. Um, so this is kind of a, an overview of, of how statistical mechanics emerge and how large deviation theory emerge. What, what's interesting when you compare it through theory, if you're a physicist doing statistical mechanics and then you start learning about large deviation theory, is that you realize that there's, very, there's something in common between large, these two theories. And at the same time, if you're a mathematician doing large deviation theory, then suddenly maybe if you become interested in statistical mechanics, then you see, well, what I'm doing is very similar. So there seems to be something going on uh, a common basis, and there is actually. In a way, you can say that large deviation theory is in the mathematics of statistical mechanics, the foundation of statistical mechanics, and that's the message that will run through this talk. Um, so this is a bit of a very gross uh, uh, timeline of the developments, and, and the fact that their line doesn't mean that they're related. Um, um, so if you know about statistical mechanics, Boltzmann, Gibbs, equilibrium theory, and then the development of non-equilibrium theory, you can put large deviation theory into this, and I'll try to do this. Now on the sides of large deviation theory, you have uh, what people consider the first large deviation theory uh, result is from Kramer, and I'll, I'll mention that result. Then the theory got more uh, uh, substance with Dunsker, the work of Dunsker and Varadhan in the 70s, and then more results in the 80s and 90s, and I'll mention a few of those. And as I said, I'm quite pleased to be in Ireland because, um, well, these are just names I know of people who worked and still working on large deviations. I'm, I'm sure there are many more there, uh, but I, as I gather, I think the source of, of this is John Lewis, who's been working on large deviations a lot. Actually, I could put John Lewis, because of, of if it's important work, somewhere around equilibrium, because he was one of the first to use large, large deviation ideas in connection with equilibrium systems. Um, right, so these are the themes. I'll go very quickly to, uh, in the talk. I'll probably skip some sections, because I have lots of material in terms of applications, but we'll just go along there. If you have any questions, you can stop me. And, and it's better just to get some ideas, uh, understand some, some stuff there, than just flick through slides there. But these are the themes. So I'll be talking about stochastic systems, and they can be any kind of systems, like equilibrium system, many-particle system, dynamical systems, stochastic dynamical systems, or queues, or if you work on networks, you can imagine these stochastic systems to be networks. And I'll be, I'll be talking a lot about most probable states and fluctuations around these states. And this is why large deviation theory is so important, because it focuses on these most probable states and fluctuations around these states. And this is the plan, more or less. So I'll start off with very basic examples of large deviation results. 
and um, probably results that you know but never seen them from the point of view of large deviation theory. And then from there, I'll, pr I'll present the basic results of large deviation, then some mathematical applications, and then I'll go on with the physics. So starting with equilibrium systems, non-equilibrium systems, and then I'll give you an overview of how it's being applied at the moment in physics. There's a sort of revival of large deviation theory at the moment in physics, uh, coming mainly through applications of large deviation theory in non-equilibrium systems, and I'll be mentioning a few of these. Right, so... The, the, the easiest example you can imagine is a sum of, of random variables, and even simpler, a sum of independent random variables distributed with the same distribution, and let's take a Gaussian distribution to start with. So uh, this is a very simple example that everybody sees when studying stochastic processes or even statistical mechanics. So you take this, and then you, you're able, you, you want to calculate the distribution of the sum. So you have n of these variables, and there's the 1 over n there to normalize or, or, or contain the fluctuations of the sum. So I'm showing there only a typical realization of that sample mean. We call this the sample mean. And the sum itself is n times the sample mean. So you see a typical realization of the sum there. And then there are two things that you know about this sum that you realize from the sample mean. The, one, the first one is that the sample mean converges to a certain value as n goes to infinity. And that's the law of large number. And then the other observation that you, you, can, you can make about this, this sample mean is that you still have fluctuations around that concentration value, that law of large number value, and these fluctuations decrease uh, as n goes to infinity. And that's related to the central limit theorem. Uh, so you can say the sum, the sample mean goes to some value which we know is the mean and pr with probability one, and then you have fluctuations that decay like one over square root of n. Um, so these are very basic observations, and then you can put them on a sort of quantitative basis by calculating the distribution of the sum, which is in this case is easy to obtain because it's a sum of Gaussian random variables, so the distribution is also Gaussian. And then you see indeed that the variance, the variance decreases to zero. But what's important from the point of view of large deviation about this density is that if you have a look at it, you see two kind of, of n behaviors there. You see first that it decays exponentially with n, the number of random variables, and then you have the square root n in front of the exponential. The square root n of, in front of the exponential is subdominant with respect to the exponential. The, the real, the dominant behavior of that density is the decaying exponential with n. And then we call this the large deviation behavior of the density. So the dominant part is to some approximate sense is the exponential with n, and then the function that controls the decay, the decay rate, is what we call the rate function. For the Gaussian case, the rate function is a parabola, okay, because you have Gaussian fluctuations. So if you have a look at the density, you see that the density concentrates more and more as n goes to infinity around that large, large number value, the mean, and then you have the fluctuations around them, and the fluctuations are given by this rate function i of s there. Now, what's interesting with large deviation is that this observation, this exponential form, is very general. It's not just for Gaussian random variables. So, you, For instance, if you take a sum of exponential random variables, then you have the two same observations. You have the law of large number, Gaussian fluctuation, but if you calculate the density for the sum, you observe that you have the same exponential behavior there. What changes is the rate function. Okay, so this, this sort of exponential behavior seems to be very general. And I'll show you another example. So this is only for a scalar kind of, of sample mean, but you can do the same thing for vectors. And this is an example. So suppose you have a, a sequence of, of random bits there, 
and you just generate the bits with a certain probability p naught and then a p1 for generating the ones, and then you can calculate what is the proportion of zeros that you see in a given sequence. So you have a random sequence, and then the proportion of zeros will be a random number, and then you have the proportion of ones in the sequence, and that will be a random number. So you have two random numbers, put that in a vector, you have a random vector. So for every, every random sequence, you'll have a random vector. And then we call this the empirical vector, or the, the distribution, the, 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 the frequency vector, if you want. Now, what is the distribution of that vector? You can do combinatorics. You find out that the, um, the distribution is the multinomial distribution. Again, from this, using Stirling approximation, you can extract an exponential behavior out of this. And then you have a sort of rate function there, which depends on that vector. And the rate function, in this case, is the relative entropy. Okay, so you still have this large deviation form. And I'll show you just one last example that makes a connection with physics now. And then this is the starting point for applying this in physics. In physics, the issue is a bit different. Now, you have different systems, and we're not that much interested about probability so much as counting the number of states that a system has given some constraint. So this is one example. If you're familiar with physics, you can imagine spins, or they're just like arrows pointing in some direction. You can say, in this case, they will point in plus or minus direction. And then what we call the mean magnetization will be the sum of these uh, spins. So it's a, it's a bit like a, a sum of random variables. But in physics, we, we, we don't really talk about probabilities. Well, we will at some point, I will at some point, but just to start things off, um, what physicists do when they start with uh, thermodynamics and statistical mechanics is that they will count the number of microstates, or so configurations, having a certain magnetization. And then if you do combinatorics for this case, then you find that that number scales exponentially with the number of spins, and then you have an exponent again in the exponential. And that exponent, you can call it a rate function, but physicists will call it an entropy. So in this case, the entropy is the entropy as a function of ma the, the magnetization. This is the expression for the entropy in this case. But you can consider this as being a rate function. And this is what we'll do uh, uh, later on. So, so the message to get from these examples is that you have this exponential form with the number of objects, random variables, or spin in this case. Uh, and, and, and you can relate this to probability, but here I'm talking about number of configurations. And, and so there's, there's an issue of, is this general? I mean, how general this is? The examples I showed earlier were for RID uh, sample means. But what large deviation will tell you is that this is very general. It's not just for RID sample mean, but it's very, for a very large class of stochastic processes that you can see this exponential form there. And this is the basis of the theory, the observation that you have this form. And the idea of large deviation theory is to say, um, what can we get from this form? How can we prove this form? How can we prove that a stochastic process has a large deviation form? The density has a large deviation form. And under which conditions do we have this? And are they tools to obtain this large deviation functions? So, so the, the general basis of the theory is the following. You just focus on a random variable. Actually, it's a family of random variable, but I'll just simplify uh, the language a bit here during this presentation. So you have a random variable which is indexed by some by something n. So here it's a sub n, and n can be anything. Um, it could, but just to fix the idea, just imagine that it's, it's the number of random variable in a sum. Okay. And then you're interested in calculating the probability density or the probability distribution. Here I'll make some simplifying assumptions that you can define a density. And I'll always be talking about probability density, but in large deviation theory, it's more complicated because um, sometimes you don't play with probability density, but you play with distribution function. So 
The, the cornerstone of, of large deviation theory is what we call the large deviation principle. It's this very observation that the density can have and will have in many cases this exponential form. So as a physicist, I'm a physicist actually working in the maths department, so I, 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 I write things very informally. I don't do rigorous mathematics. So this is how I would write the large deviation principle, like just with this wiggle sign. So this is the observation that the density may have or will have uh, approximately that its dominant form will be exponential with n, and then you have this rate function there. And the meaning of this, this approximation sign is, again, this observation. So the dominant behavior of the density is the exponential. So if you take the log of the density, divide by n, and take a limit, then the only thing that you extract from this limit will be the rate function. Everything else, every other contribution, will be killed off by this limit. And this is, this is the definition of the large deviation principle. Now, this is the physicist's definition of a large deviation principle. Mathematically, it's more complicated than this. And, and in a way, the, 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 the very substance of the theory is in stating, defining this large deviation principle and then proving that, indeed, it does uh, exist for some stochastic process. So what mathematician, mathematicians will do, essentially, is to say, right, to make sense of this approximation, we'll, we'll define, we'll prove an upper bound and then we'll prove a lower bound for the density. And then both of these bounds will be exponential. So you have a kind of squeezing. So the dominant behavior of that object, that density, will be exponential. But I won't be talking about these um, subtleties here. I'll, I'll, very, I'll make the explanation very simple and only talk about this kind of approximation with the wiggle sign there. Um, so that's the, 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 we call this the large deviation principle. It's, it's the underlying object in large deviation theory. And then the object we get from this limit is what we call the rate function. Okay? So the goal of large deviation theory is really to prove for, for certain stochastic processes that you have the existence of the large deviation principle. And then the ultimate goal is to calculate this rate function. So how do we do this? So in large deviation theories, it's, you have many tools for doing th uh, this, many, many results for proving large deviation principles, for extracting the rate function, and I'll be talking only about two of these results. So it, it, what I'll be presenting is not, is not the whole of large deviation theory, but it'll be just very useful for me to, pr to stay on these results and then present the applications later on. So um, the first one is called the gartner elias uh, theorem. Um, and that's essentially a very useful result to get large deviation functions because with this result, you can prove that there is a large deviation principle and obtain the rate function at the same time. But it doesn't work for every stochastic processes, and I'll mention a few things about this. So the theorem was proved initially by, by Gartner, and then it was uh, uh, slightly extended by Richard Ellis in 94. And, and the idea is to compute some kind of quantity, which I call lambda k there. So you're, not, you're attacking the problem of obtaining a rate function by calculating some quantity, which uh, uh, looks like a generating function. So when you calculate the generating function for your random variable, you take the log, take the limit, and then if you obtain this quantity, then essentially you're in business. So the theorem essentially, is, this is a simplified version of the theorem. If lambda k exists and is differentiable and steep, and I'll mention what I mean by steep, but essentially if it's differentiable, then you have the existence of the large deviation principle for your random variable, and the rate function will be the Legendre transform of this lambda k. Okay, so if, if you're a physicist now and, and you hear now Legendre transform, there is a Legendre transform of thermodynamics, and I'll come to this. Essentially, it's essentially this Legendre transform. So again, you get the two results. You get the existence of an LDP for the random variable an, and, and you get the rate function as the Legendre transform of this lambda k. 
Lambda k is, is called the uh, scale cumulant generating function. Um, you get, so this is the Legendre transform. Out of this, you get automatically that the rate function has to be concave, uh, convex. Okay, so this tells you in a way that this is not the definitive result for large deviation theory because we know of stochastic processes having non-convex rate functions. So these non-convex rate functions cannot be obtained by uh, this theorem, and I'll mention a few things about this. So it's not applicable when I is non-convex, but it's very applicable in, in other cases. Uh, just a few words about steep. To say that lambda k is steep is just to mean that the derivative of lambda k blows up at the boundary, so it's just like enveloping. It's a, and it's a technical condition that you need there um, to cover essentially for a non-convex non rate function. Now, a second result which is very useful for deriving large deviation principle is what we call the contraction principle. So this result essentially is, the, is, is, is for the following problem. Suppose you know the large deviation principle for some random variable, and then what you're looking at, really what you're interested in, is some function of that underlying random variable. Is there also a large deviation principle for that function? And the answer is yes. So if you have, so start, you have a large deviation principle for an, and then you say, well, I'm interested in bn, so that's a function of an. Then you can write down the probability for bn, it's just a contraction, it's just the sum of the probability for all the values giving rise to b. And then the contraction principle would tell you that there will be a large deviation principle for bn. Okay, so you have a rate function for bn. And the rate function for bn will be a sort of infimum of the rate function for a. And then you take the infimum, you take the minimization over all the value a giving rise to a certain fluctuation b. Okay, so that's a sort of the interpretation. You have to imagine many values of A giving rise to a certain value B. They all have different probabilities. They all have exponentially decaying probabilities. So the probability for that fluctuation or value B is the largest of all the very small probabilities. So this is why you have the infimum there. So you take the maximum probability. It's a sort of Laplace approximation of that integral there. And this is, in <coughs> physics, when, when you see this result, it's the, it's the basis for... Uh, maximum entropy principle. So if you know anything about maximum entropy principle, it's a sort of, it, it resembles this. And actually, if you look down in the mathematics, that's exactly this. A maximum entropy principle is just an application of the contraction principle. It's also the basis of thermodynamic variational principles, like, well, the maximum entropy principle is such a variational principle, but there's another one called the, f the minimum free energy principle, and that's also an application of the contraction principle. And I'll come, I'll come to this. Right, so now let's go to some um, uh, mathematical examples. So what I'll do now, I'll, I'll just use the gartner ellis theorem to rederive what I showed you earlier uh, for the example. So I'll go back to the IID sample mean, and I'll be using this, this technique of calculating this lambda k. Um, and actually, this is the result of Kramer. So this is Kramer proved the first large deviation theory in the context of IID sample means. And for this type of stochastic process, the lambda k is very simple because essentially you have no limits. Because if you have i d random variables for your sample mean, then you can factorize the, the expectation value. So my brackets, there is the physicist notation for the expectation, expectation value. You can factorize this and then the limit disappears. So what you're left with is to calculate a generating function and take the log of this, and that's your lambda k. So if, for instance, you take a Gaussian a distribution for the, 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 the summons there, well, this is your lambda k, it's a parabola. And if you take the Legendre transform of the parabola, 
then you get also a parabola for the rate function, which is exactly the rate function I showed you earlier. But now it's derived in a much simpler way. Um, this satisfied the conditions of the Gartner-Ellis theorem, right? It's differentiable and it's steep, so you take the Legendre transform and you get this parabola. The parabola is the fixed point of the Legendre transform. It's the only one. So that's why you have the parabola for the lambda k and the parabola for the rate function. Now, if you take the Poisson case, then you do the same thing. You just calculate this lambda k. You don't have to calculate the distribution uh, from scratch. You just calculate the lambda k. It satisfies the Gartner Ellis conditions for a certain range of k. You calculate the Legendre transform, and you get this rate function. And it's exactly the rate function I showed you earlier that you can obtain, say, using convolution or using characteristic function methods to get the distribution. Now, out of this, again, you get only the dominant contribution, but that's the dominant contribution. So, in a way, if you're interested about fluctuations, small and large fluctuations, you should be interested only in that dominant behavior. Um, now, let's consider, again, a, a, a random vector. So, instead of a scalar sum, now, let's consider the case of the, the frequencies I talked before. And, and that theorem now in large deviation theory is called Sanov's theorem. It was proved by Sanov in 1961, but I, if, if you're a physicist, again, this is where things uh, begin to be very um, interesting because if you start reading Boltzmann, then you see that he's essentially done the same thing for, for, uh, 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 for gas and spin systems. Uh, a calculation was very close to what Sanov uh, did. So this is the context. So you have a, a sequence of ID random variables again. You can think of binary random variables if you want to, but you can think of, of variables taking other values. In this case, I say, well, let's take the case where the random variables have Q values. Okay, so if you're a physicist, it's a bit like a, a POTS model with Q colors. And let's take the underlying distribution to be this one, so the probability for a certain random variable to take the value J will be P sub J. And then again, you construct this vector of empirical frequency. So you count the number of times you see the symbol 1, the number of times you see the symbol 2, and then so on until Q. And so you have Q values like this. You put them in a vector, and then you have your vector of empirical frequencies. Okay? That's a random vector. If you draw a sequence, you have a given empirical vector. So you have a random object like this. So you can calculate the distribution of that vector and then inquire as to whether you have um, large deviation properties. Now, the same thing here. You just have to calculate the lambda k. Now, the lambda k will involve a k vector because you're, you're dealing with a vector uh, random variable. Um, so the only modification you have to take is that in the generating function, you'll have a vector k. You, essentially, you have a k for each component of your random vector. So you have the scalar product of k dot l there. You calculate this. In the case of ID sequence, it's a very simple expression. You take the Legendre transform of this expression, and then you get the relative entropy. Okay. So that's the relative entropy. It's also known as, it's got different names there, the information divergence, the uh, Kullback-Leibler distance. Uh, it's the basis of many results in information theory. And if you know anything about uh, asymptotic equipartition theorem, uh, Shannon-Macmillan-Brynham theorem, it's, it's based around this result of, of empirical frequency large deviation theory, or Sanov's theorem. Okay, so this is the result that Sanov really proved. Uh, now, when I mentioned Boltzmann, Boltzmann did the same calculation, but starting with the multinomial distribution. So it followed more or less the first example I showed you earlier with the binary spin and then taking the multinomial using starting approximation to derive a large deviation principle. Now, he never called it the large deviation principle. And I suspect, I haven't, I haven't read Sanov, but I'm not sure that Sanov actually talked about large deviation 
theory as such because it wasn't developed at the time. The language wasn't there really, but this is what it is really. Right. Now, the interesting thing in large deviation theory is that you can extend this beyond ID. This is where it becomes interesting. So you can consider now as the next step Markov processes. So Markov chains, uh, uh, stochastic differential equation using uh, Gaussian white noise and things like this. So either continuous time, continuous space, discrete space, discrete time. And, and the framework for this is the work of Dunsker and Varada in the 70s. So, the game here is essentially the same as well. You can start off with the gartner ellis theorem if you want, but you have other techniques uh, to, to obtain large deviation function. But this is the way there. Uh, you can still calculate the lambda k. And what you realize in this case is that the lambda k for a, I'm dealing with the Markov chain now as an illustration, but the, the lambda k will be the log of the, of the, the smallest eigenvalue of this matrix there. So the pi itself is the transition matrix of your Markov chain. Now you just put this exponential factor there. We call this a tilting of the transition matrix. So you get this new transition matrix, which is a positive matrix, pi k there. And then if you look at the eigenvalues of that matrix, you just pick the smallest. So you never remember if it's the smallest, the largest one. Um, I think it's the largest one. And then you take the log and that's your lambda k. Okay. The fact that you pick the largest eigenvalue is just a reflection of the fact that you're looking at the dominant behavior of, of the probability. And that sort of asymptotic behavior will be given by only one eigenvalue of the whole transition matrix. But the message out of this is that you do get also a large deviation form for your sample mean, and that will be given by the Legendre transform of lambda k. You can do the same thing in continuous time. It's a bit more involved, but you can still do it. The lambda k will be the dominant eigenvalue of the generator of your process plus kf. So you, you're tilting again the, the generator of your process. You're just changing, you're modifying the, the generator of your process. And this is, this is non-scrivarian theory. You can do this also for other kinds of random variables. So I've just chosen the, the, the sample mean, but you can also do it for um, the empirical vector. And then you find something which is not the relative entropy. So the large deviation of the empirical vector for a Markov chain or a Markov process is different because you have correlations now between the random variables. But you can derive formally for the rate function. Right, so now I'll finish just this mathematical introduction by just mentioning a few things which I've mentioned before. So we started off with a few observations with, with sample means, but you can relate these observations about love large number and center and limit theorem to the properties of rate functions. So the fact that you have a most probable value for a stochastic process, the fact that you have a love large number, will be generically related to the fact that you have a zero in the rate function. Okay? Because the, re the zero in a rate function will give you the most probable value of that process. Right? Any other value will have a positive rate function, which means that the probability will decay so the probability will be concentrating where the rate function is zero. So that's your love large number. Then, in many cases, you can expand the rate function around the minimum in a Taylor series up to second order. And this will translate into Gaussian fluctuations around the most probable value. So that's essentially the central limit theorem. Around the most probable value, you have Gaussian fluctuations. Now, away from that most probable value, you can have different sorts of fluctuations. And this will be determined by the shape of the rate function. So if, for instance, if you have a rate function that's linear in the tails, that means that we'll have 
exponential fluctuations in the density. But essentially, all these fluctuations, the shape in the fluctuations, will be encoded in the shape of the rate function. So this is why the rate function is so important. It encodes the shape of the fluctuations. And this is very, uh, uh, very pictorial language, the shape of the fluctuation. But that's essentially this. Now, there are stochastic processes, I've mentioned this, for which the rate function is not... Uh, convex. So the, the earlier examples I showed you, the rate functions were convex, but they could be non-convex. So if you have a bimodal distribution, that will translate into a non-convex rate functions. And these often arise in connection with phase transitions. And for these, I've mentioned this, that the rate function won't be given by the gartner list theorem. So they won't be given by a Legendre transform because a Legendre transform can only give you a convex function. So you have to go beyond this, and there are results to go beyond this. The contraction principle is a result, for instance, that can give you non-convex rate functions. Right, so let's go to the physics examples now. So what I'll, do, what I'll be doing from now on is just to apply this language and, and, and these results to physics to sort of re rephrase physics in a large deviation way. And this, this, this was the, the exercise that I've done in that review paper in physics reports. It sort of represents statistical mechanics in such a way that you just pinpoint, you just really focus on the large deviation principles and then you, 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 you just present the structure of, of statistical mechanics based on large deviation theory. And, and um, We'll see that it makes sense of, of, of doing this, and actually it brings something to the study of statistical mechanics, and I'll, I'll mention a few things about this. But it's not really surprising, because in statistical mechanics, what we're doing is that we're dealing with many particle systems that we model as stochastic processes. And then we take a sort of thermodynamic limit, which is we just increase the size of the system on and on and on, and then we get the equilibrium um, state of that system in the thermodynamic limit. So we're sort of doing a large deviation scaling, there's a parameter that goes to infinity, and then we're just studying the distribution of that system as n goes to infinity. So we are in the regime of doing large deviation theory. So this is the, 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 the context. So you have n particles, and in physics we, ca we call the configuration of that system, that microscopic configuration of the system, uh, as the microstate. And then you have sorts of, in, in, in this case, which we call the microcanonical ensemble, the, 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 the context is that the energy of the system is fixed to some value. So you have to imagine, for instance, a, a vessel of gas, like here, for instance. I'm not sure it's content energy because you have windows, but uh, if you close the, the, the windows and put shades there, maybe you can arrange this to constant energy. And then you have your system. You have random configurations around, and then you model this as a stochastic process. So you have an underlying distribution for the configuration, which we call the prior distribution. And then what you're interested to calculate is that you look at some kind of macro state, say like uh, magnetization or, or mean pressure or things like this, and you want to calculate the distribution of that macro state. Now, uh, I speak French. It's very difficult for me to distinguish between macro state and micro state. I'm sure it is to your ears as well. So I'll be talking about microstate and microstate. <laughs> now, for many systems, what you realize, and I'm skipping many steps here, but when you look at the distribution of that microstate for a given value of the energies, that you do find that it has a large deviation form. And now the scaling parameter there is the number of particles or the volume. That's, that's the large deviation parameter. And then you can write it in the large deviation form, and then you can extract the rate functions. But physicists will actually, they won't put the minus sign there. They'll just put the plus sign, and they have this function. And this function, they call the entropy. Okay? It's nothing less but the definition of the entropy. 
And essentially, this is Einstein's fluctuation theory. So Einstein was, was looked at the microcanonical ensemble and said, okay, if you have fluctuations of a certain microstate, that defines the entropy. Okay, so he looks the other way. He started with fluct from fluctuations and defined the entropy. What we're saying here is that this is, this is large deviation theory in action for the microcanonical ensemble. It has the same form as large deviation theory, so the entropy is a sort of minus rate function. And now the way you would define equilibrium, the way physicists define equilibrium is we say, well, that system has a distribution. That distribution concentrates around the most probable value. That most probable value is the equilibrium state, is the stable state of the system, is the state that's most probable. And to find this state, you only have to find the maximum of the distribution, which is the same as the maximum of the entropy function. It will be the minimum of a rate function. That will be the concentration point. But for physicists working with the entropy, it will be the maximum of the entropy. And that's the maximum entropy principle. The equilibrium state in the microcanonical ensemble is the state that maximizes the entropy for a given value of the energy. And so this is rephrased in large deviation language for the microcanonical ensemble. You can do the same thing for the canonical ensemble. And here the physical situation is different. So you don't have a system at fixed energy, but you have a system at fixed temperature. So you have a sort of subsystem coupled to a heat bath, and that system imposes a temperature on your sample system. And so if you follow statistical mechanics, now you have to change the prior distribution. So the prior distribution will depend on the temperature, and this is the Gibbs state. So you only change the way you weight the microscopic configurations, but the object of, the, of statistical mechanics is still the same. You have a microstate, you want to calculate the distribution of that microstate, but you only change the, the prior distribution. For many systems, and I, I'll mention a few systems later on, I'm not, I'm not showing you for which kind of systems you can do this, but for many systems what you find is that the distribution, which depends on temperature, uh, also has an exponential form with the number of particles, and the exponent, you can write it in using the rate function, but physicists will call this the free energy. And this actually, if you go back to physics, this goes back to Landau. So Landau fluctuation theory for the canonical ensemble is a large deviation theory for a macrostate in the canonical ensemble. As we did before, you can find what is the equilibrium state of your system, so you just minimize the free energy, and that's the minimum free energy principle. So the most probable value of your macrostate is the one minimizing the free energy, is the one minimizing the rate function. It's the zero of the rate function, and that's your equilibrium state for the canonical ensemble. So this is, and you can do this in different ensembles depending on what you have as constraint, if you have constant magnetization or constant chemical potentials and so on, but this is essentially the basis. You define a prior, you have your configuration, define a macrostate, calculate the distribution of the macrostate, realize that it has a large deviation form, and then calculate equilibrium states, but also the rate function will give you also the fluctuations around that equilibrium state, and that's also known in physics. Now, Here's, here's the one and only example I'll, I'll show you. That's the 2D Ising model. It's a, it's a spin model on the square lattice, and you have first neighbor, first neighbor interaction, so it's a plus minus one spin model. I don't want to go into details of the model itself and, and, and its meaning and what it has, but um, what I want to show you is that you can calculate a rate function. This is the rate function of the magnetization, so that's the sum of the spins, as a function of the energy. So I have two plots there for two different energies, and this is the value of the magnetization. The magnetization is a random variable that will go from minus one to one. So at high energy, the equilibrium state is zero magnetization, and then you have sort of Gaussian fluctuations around this. And as you decrease the energy, you'll go into a phase transition, 
and suddenly the, the, the rate function will develop a sort of plateau having zero value. And that means that you have, physically that means that you have phase coexistence and you have many things going on in that region. Okay? The fact that you have a whole region of the rate function which is zero essentially tells you that you have to go deeper there, but essentially a sign of a phase transition. Now, if you're a physicist, this is the Lando picture, but more complicated because you don't have a, 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 a Taylor expansion of that free energy. But this is the rate function. And you can do the same thing as a function of, of temperature. Here I'm just showing the rate function as a function of the energy. Now, the way you obtain these rate functions is very complicated, especially for the 2D Ising model. If you play with uh, mean field models and long-range models, it's much easier to extract rate functions, but it can be done in, in theory for, for any model. You can, you can extract rate functions for any model. So again, the, the rate function will give you the equilibrium state, the fluctuations, and it will give you a sort of picture as to whether there is a phase transition or any kind of, of these things here. So here this is, we call this a second order phase transition in magnetization as a function of the energy. Now, the interesting here to note, I have more things in my figure there, is that that rate function can also be related to an entropy. You can calculate an entropy for the model as a function of energy magnetization, and the two are related. And this is the, the, the a sort of sketch of the entropy of the 2Dizing model. Actually, we have no way of calculating this analytically. It's just a sketch there, but this is how it looks like. So you have plateau in the entropy, and these plateaus are related to the plateau that you see in the rate function. So this is an entropy that you can calculate. So usually in physics, you will, be, will calculate an entropy, and then from this extract a rate function. And the rate function, again, will give us a thermodynamic picture of that system as a function of energy or temperature. Now, that brings me to the entropy. So how do we calculate entropy? I've mentioned this before. So this is how you would define entropy using the density of states or the number of configurations for giving energy. And as I said before, the entropy is just a rate function in disguise. It's just a rate function without a minus sign. So if you go on and apply the gartner list theorem, you can apply this to the entropy. And so what you get, the Legendre transform that you had in the gartner list theorem, now will tell you that the entropy is the Legendre transform of the free energy. So the free energy will be this limit, which is the limit involving the partition function. So this really is the free energy, okay, up to some constant. I'm not putting the one over beta in the free energy, but this is the result that you get from gartner ellis So this tells you really what are the conditions uh, for having a Legendre transform in thermodynamics, for having an entropy given as the Legendre transform of the free energy. And then so from this you get these correspondences, and then you get something extra. You know from now on that the entropy, if it, if it is non-concave, will not be given by the Legendre transform of the free energy. Okay? And this is something that, that we're studying now. I'm just mentioning this very quickly, but um, I'm studying myself long-range interacting systems. And for these systems, we see a lot of non-concave entropies. And they're not artificial non-concave entropy in the sense that they don't come because of the mean field character. They are physical interactions that are genuinely long range. And then for these, if you try to calculate entropies, you'll get non-concave regions and the entropies. And they're the source of many inter interesting physics like first order phase transition, uh, a phase splitting, and, and non-equivalent ensembles. So whenever you have a non-concave entropy, for instance, you are assured that the microcanonical ensemble is completely different from the canonical ensemble. So there's something going on in the microcanonical ensemble that you wouldn't see, you don't see in the canonical ensemble. If you're interested by this, then you can have a look at uh, the, the, the review paper. There are more references there. Um, now, what I want to do is to, so this is all for equilibrium. So we just 
transpose the whole of large deviation theory in an equilibrium. And what I'll, I'll finish with is just to show you that you can also do the same thing also for non-equilibrium in certain directions. Um, and the simplest case you can consider is, is the case of, of noise-perturbed dynamical systems. So you imagine some kind of dynamical system like a differential flow here. You have a, a dynamical equation. And then you just add Gaussian white noise with a certain value for the noise power, epsilon. And that's your perturbation. So what was originally a deterministic process becomes a stochastic process. So for the same initial condition, you can have many sample paths depending on the noise. And, and for simplicity, I'll be working with Gaussian white noise. And so the idea here is to say, all right, if I introduce my perturbation, you can imagine that if the noise is very small, then most of the trajectories of the system, the stochastic trajectories of the system, will stay very close to the, de the deterministic trajectory. And so in the limit where the noise epsilon, noise power epsilon goes to zero, there should be a sort of concentration around the most probable path, which is the deterministic path. And the question is, is there a large deviation principle at play behind this um, concentration? And the answer is that there is one. And this is the formulation. Now, this is, again, the physicist's formulation of that large deviation principle. Uh, uh, it's very sloppy, but it's very, it's, you, you get the idea out of this, and then you can make this formal. And it was made formal by Frenden and Wenzel, but actually the result dates back to Anzanger and Maclup, and even before that. And so the idea is that you can define a sort of probability for a whole path, and that's a functional. Okay. So it's a function of a function that's a functional. It's a probability that the system follows a whole trajectory. And then you can define a sort of large deviation form for that trajectory. And now the scaling parameter is the noise power epsilon. And then the rate function will be this rate function. It's a functional now, and it's called the action. And then you, you can recognize this. This is the onzager maclub functional for the Gaussian path. It's also, I guess it was also derived by Feynman. It was derived by Fredlin. It was derived by many, many people. And, and you get this rate function uh, using Gaussian white noise. You also have generalized uh, action for non-Gaussian white noise, color noise, for instance. But this is the same picture. You have a large deviation probability, but with a different scaling now. And as we had before, the zero of that rate function will be the concentration point. The concentration point, in this case, is the most probable dynamics. And then you have, in this case, Gaussian fluctuations around the most probable dynamics. And out of this, now, you can calculate many things. You can calculate propagators. You can calculate stationary distribution. Now, for instance, if you want to calculate the probability of reaching a point x starting from points x naught, then it will also have a large deviation form that will be given by the contraction principle. And the contraction principle will tell you that the rate function for this new probability will be the minimization of the rate function that you had originally given the terminal constraints. And then for a station distribution, you just take this time to be very large. You can also calculate exit time. So if you have a sort of process moving around and you want to calculate what is the expected time that it hits some boundary, well, all the trajectories will be exponentially small to hit the boundary. So the probability of hitting the boundary will be given by the largest probability, which is still exponentially small. So that's a sort of Laplace approximation. And then you get that the, expect the, the exit time with probability will be exponential. And then you get a sort of minimization to give you this, uh, 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 this sort of action for the, the, the exit time. 
Now, I'm mentioning this very quickly, but there's a whole theory of these processes, and it, it ha you have interesting connections here. Um, to find these minimiz uh, minimizers, you have to solve early Lagrange equations. You can relate this to Hamiltonian equations. You can also relate this to Hamiltonian Jacobi equations. It's very rich there, and you can even find minimizers using dynamic programming. Um, so it's, a, it's very connected to optimization theory, and it's very rich in terms of structure and equations there. And um, not sure, this is an example, but I don't think I have the time to go over this. Uh, but this is a noisy system. You can calculate the stationary distribution using these techniques, and you find a sort of bifurcation which underlies the bifurcation in the original system. Um, but in this precise example, you get the rate function by solving a Hamiltonian Jacobi equation. Now, I'll finish with this now. The current study. The current studies in non-equilibrium systems are on this kind of process. So what people look at now is that they can manipulate system at a very fine level using lasers and optical tweezers, if you know anything about this. So they can calculate very minuscule particles that fluctuate, and then they can, they can observe these particles, they can observe these fluctuations, and they can manipulate, they can pull them, they can apply forces onto them, so they can study fluctuations in non-equilibrium setting. And they can even measure rate functions. They can measure uh, the lambda k I showed you earlier. They can measure rate functions because they can measure fluctuations. And, and the quantity that they calculate, I'll show you an example, is uh, you can calculate the work applied to a particle. You can calculate the heat released by a particle over time. And the kind of observable that you, you'd be interested to study are essentially some of random variables. So they fall naturally into the context of large deviation theory. And this is an example. So this is a general observable. It's just an integral of some function of your trajectory over time. Now you can plug this into the Gartner's theorem, and it will tell you that under some conditions, you'll have a rate function for that observable that will be derived from the lambda k. And this falls also in the Donsker-Varadon theory that I showed you earlier, if your stochastic process is a Markov process, which it often is. So many people, this is an example for which you can do uh, actual experiments. So the way you model the system is, is a Langevin equation. So you have a particle that, that's being trapped by a laser, and then you can pull that particle over time. It's immersed in liquid, so it fluctuates. It's a very tiny particle. And with the laser, Essentially what the laser does is that it applies sort of a spring, so you attach, the laser is sort of attached to the particle and you can, you can pull the particle, but the actual force between the laser and the particle is a spring-like force. So this is the picture now for this. And as you pull the particle, it will absorb energy from the surrounding bath. It would also release energy back to the bath. And then you can calculate what is the average heat that it releases, what is the average work that you do by pulling the particle. And people can measure these fluctuations, they can measure the probability uh, distribution of these, of these fluctuations. And this is how they model the whole thing. So this is the work that you perform onto the particle. The work will be transferred into potential energy and to heat. This is the first law of thermodynamics. You can do large deviation calculation, and then you realize that the rate function is also a parabola, so that means Gaussian fluctuations for the work. And I'm not showing the comparison with the experiments, but you get a, a perfect fit with the experiment. It's quite nice. And then for the heat, though, if you calculate the fluctuations for the Q tau down, it's not Gaussian. It's actually exponential. Okay? So you can have different fluctuations uh, depending on the quantity that you look at and um, depending also, of, of course, on the system that you look at. Uh, so people do this kind of, of, of experiments with, with laser tweezers and particles, but they also look at fluctuations in electrical circuits 
Um, also in, in pulling DNA, so when you pull single-strand DNA, when you apply a force, you still have fluctuations in the force, and then you can measure the fluctuations, the rate functions associated with these fluctuations. And then you can build models, and then usually it's very good. And I'll finish with this. This is an actual, uh, this is a list of, it's not a complete list, but it's a list of applications that, that people have worked in the past, still working now, of large deviations in physics. So I've mentioned non-equilibrium systems. Um, if you know anything about these, especially about fluctuation theorems, fluctuation theorems are just examples of large deviation results. Uh, but they, they weren't really discovered from that point of view, but we can realize now that now. So if you know anything about Galevati cohen fluctuation theorems, these are large deviation results in disguise somehow. Uh, you can also derive fluctuation dissipation relations for non-equilibrium systems using large deviation techniques. Um, if you know anything about multifractals, um, a structure function and a, um, I don't remember what that was the name of the other function, but there are large deviation functions also. So the, the underlying structure of multifractals is large deviation theory. Uh, what people know as the thermodynamic formalism is also a kind of, of, of uh, first version of large deviation theory. Um, there are many large deviation applications in disordered systems, so random walks and random environments, spin glasses. Uh, uh, in this case, you have to speak at different levels of large deviations. You can speak about large deviations for a given value of the disorder or uh, large deviations average over the disorder, and, and, and these relates to quenched and annealed large deviations. Uh, quantum systems, um, Bose gas, there are many applications there, not that much compared to the classical world, but there's been some applications of large deviation theory. And, and most of the activity, actually at the moment, is on non-equilibrium systems, as I mentioned, and especially on, on models, what we call interacting particle models. So you, you, these are essentially one-dimensional uh, lattices with particle, and then you just imagine some rules for moving this particle around, and then you can calculate large deviation results for this, for the current, for the profile, for, for many quantities for these, and these are taken as models of non-equilibrium systems. Um, there are models in which you don't have detailed balance, and they have a very rich structure and dynamics, and then you can prove large deviation results uh, uh, for many of these. So if you know anything about the zero-range process, exclusion process, simple exclusion process, uh, uh, TASCEP, ASCEP, all these acronyms. Um, you have many, many studies at the moment on large deviations of these processes and hydrodynamic limits on this. Um, so I'll leave you with, this is essentially the translation guide. If, you, if you're a physicist, this is how you would translate things from statistical mechanics to large deviation theory. If you're working on the other side, you just go back like this. But there's a correspondence between the language that we use in statistical mechanics and the language that is used in large deviation theory. And it's, it's very obvious to see this when you, when you start dwelling on, on one side, uh, starting from the other side. And I think this is very rich because, for instance, we realize many things in studying long-range systems that we didn't know. And that we, I, I can argue that you would, we, we, we were able to realize this only by knowing about large deviations. And I think there's a very rich uh, 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 exchange that can be established between the two theories. So this is essentially the, the, the translation guide for you. And again, there's this quote that large deviation theory is the basis, the mathematical basis of statistical mechanics. Now, if you want to know more about this, um, I, can, I can suggest the following again. I mean, you don't have to read the first one. I don't want to make too much publicity on this one, but uh, they're, they're not really my own ideas. Many people have worked in that, that line of thought. And for instance, Ono, uh, Richard Ellis has a book, not easy to read, 
there's also a book on large deviation I can recommend. It's much easier to read there. But you also have papers from uh, John Lewis. Uh, I can give you some references. But there are many references in the physics reports in any case, so you can get more reference out of this. All right, so thank you. Does anybody have any questions I'd like to ask you? Dave? So the, as I understand it, the reason that entropy is used as a term both in information theory and in uh, statistical mechanics is because it was picked up by the information theory people because it looked similar. Yes. And then the underlying reason will be because there's large deviation proofs. For, yes. Do you think this means there'll be some other subject now where large deviations can be applied and they'll start calling death in entropy too? I don't know, is there any, any other field in which they use the word entropy? Not yet, but um, I expect well, like, there will be someday. Yeah, well, it's essentially a thermodynamic entropy. Yeah. I think, yeah, I mean, I got into large deviation exactly for that reason. I remember taking a course in information theory, and then the, I won't mention the name, but the, uh, the lecturer said there's absolutely no connection between physical entropy and information theory entropy. And I thought, okay, I'll take it from there. But as I, when I started learning about large deviation, I thought, aha, this is there. I mean, this is, this is the connection. And I believe now information theory uh, is, is taught from the point of view of large deviations. So or there are at least textbooks taking the large deviation point of view for teaching information theory. Nobody else is going to ask him a question. I'm going to ask them. Um, so your long-range dependent uh, models that end up giving you non convex ray functions, are they on the same scales as that you use? Is the speed the same? Yes. So, um, even, so even though you get non, yeah. non yeah. So the So there are two things for a large deviation principle. There's the, the scaling with n or the volume, and we call this the speed or the scale. And then there's the rate function. And I said that for long range, then the entropy will be non-concave or the rate function will be non-convex. But usually they, they, these systems don't have a different speed. They don't have a different scale. So you still have the volume as the proper scale to look at but you have a non-concave entropy. The reason why I use non-concave and not non-convex is because of the minus sign. So um, I'm conscious that we're, gonna, we're running a bit late today, so I'm going to cut it off here. Hugo is here for the rest of today and uh, all of tomorrow. If anybody would like to ask him any questions, they're perfectly welcome to do so after the talk. So I'm going to thank him one more time. Thank you very much. For that. Thank you.